Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. Conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute, and today we're talking to Dr. Danielle Trewick. Danielle is the founding director of Single-Minded and an ordained deacon within the Anglican Diocese of Sydney. She served on the minister team of a number of different churches and speaks regularly at various conferences, events, churches, and podcasts. Her new book is The Meaning of Singleness, Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary (laughs) Church. But before we talk to Danielle, we want to remind you that if you're enjoying our interviews, it would help if you left us a review. Now let's go to Ed Setzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the Dean of Talbot School. Of theology. You know, we now say they're regular, the Dean of Talbot School of Theology, but we have not and yet, and not that it's an announcement that you're going to continue to do, this is the last podcast that we'll, too, we'll do two that we record in this studio, because mm-hmm. then I'll be moving to California, but we will continue our partnership, and we're excited about, we about many episodes to come here at the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast as well. Okay, so I was recently in Australia, and I began to hear about somebody by the name of Danny. That's what they referred to you as, is Danny. And uh, and and you were writing, of course, on singleness, but you're this isn't the only topic that you obviously care about it and so care about. So, but I, I think it's an important one for us. So I was super excited about your book and and also about really the idea of having this conversation because, and just kind of transparently, you know, right? I have been married for all that I remember. A matter of fact, I've been with uh, Donna Stetzer for all that I remember. We started dating when we were 16. We got married at 20. Um, it's I, I saw you respond to um, to all the the tweets that people had put out, including me, because some 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 bloke, as you say in Australia, put out this tweet saying, "Don't don't date in your 20s. Don't fall in love in your 20s, and you're going to ruin your career." And then I tweeted something, you know, dating at 16, prom at 17, married at 20, et cetera, et cetera. And you and you tweeted um, something to the effect of, "Man, I, I wish some of those stories were 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 not just about how I got married and and et cetera, et cetera." So I want to, uh, and you like to poke the bear, the poke the bear on the Twitter. I like that. I'm I like to poke the bear on the Twitter. So I figure we got to get to know each other. We've not met. We didn't meet when I was in Australia, but I'm super excited. The, the title of the book is "The Meaning of Singleness: Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church." So um, the Contemporary Church certainly has a vision for marriage. Uh, has a vision for children. So how? What? Why do we need to recover a vision for singleness? Well, because there's a lot of sing- Christians who are single, uh, and there's a lot of Christians who will be single again as well. And not just because we want to love and care for individual Christians who happen to not be married or who may not be married for the rest of their life, um, but because actually I'm convinced who we are as the body of Christ is married and single together. We actually need each other. Uh, to inhabit our our identity as the body of Christ, just as we need men and women, just as we need young and old. Um, so I think uh, theology of singleness is not just really essential for single Christians, um, but is actually essential for the church as a whole. Yeah. So here's why I'm all in on your book. Uh, I'm all in on your book because it's sort of like there's been a flood the other direction. And, and, and again, I, I would say in all likelihood, I would be, you know, because I, 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 got, I got married young, all that sort of stuff. Um, there's, I mean, there's just an overwhelming sense that if, for example, if you're going to be a pastor, you're, you're going to be married with kids. If you're, if you're going to be complete, you're going to be married with kids. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be an adult, you're going to be married with kids. And this is a far cry from the history. And you unpack some of this. This is a far cry from how Christians historically have viewed marriage and singleness. So I guess the question first is 
How do we get to where we are now, where that's the Christian, almost the Christian vision? Yeah, and that's, you know, we're talking centuries and centuries of Christian, not just Christian, actually, social history here too. Uh, I, In my book, I explore the ancient church, the medieval church, but also the reformed and then the modern and, and postmodern church. I, I do think that the Reformation was key. I mean, clearly, I'm died in the, you know, wool Protestant, so the Reformation is very key to me. But in terms of a theology of sexuality uh, and marriage and almost a kind of absence of a theology of singleness, the Reformation was actually very central uh, in sort of turning a lot of what had been problematic teachings in the church until that point on its head um, and rehabilitating a really important theology of marriage um, and its its goodness. Uh, but I think in the 500 or so years that have since passed, combined with a whole lot of social developments, such as the Industrial Revolution, sort of the privatisation of the nuclear household, um, the sexual revolution of the 20th century, uh, expressive individualism, all these things have actually combined to get to the point where we are now, where I think as Christians, we, we do have a theology of marriage, we have a theology of family. I'm not always sure that either of those theologies are as robust as they could be, um, but we, we seem to have, yeah, an absence of a, a, a robust theology of singleness um, in a way that the early church particularly would have been very surprised at, I think. You, you you talk about in the book uh, like there's a diversity among singles and and maybe mm. even how like the phrase singleness doesn't really capture like that spectrum. Can can you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah, that's actually thank you for asking that because that's a really important thing to address. That the word single in our day does a lot of heavy lifting. It, it kind of encapsulates a whole lot of things that we may not be aware of, or we might be talking at cross purposes about as well. Um, so when I'm speaking about singleness, I'm speaking about it as the alternative to being married, that, you know, basically there's marriage or there's not being married. And in not being married, there's a whole lot of different circumstances and contexts, um, whether it's someone like myself who has never been married, whether it's someone who's widowed, divorced. Uh, and even within those very sort of three primary contexts, there's all sorts of different um, complexities and, and unique situations that are going on there. And so the word singleness really is a very loaded one um, that we have to unpack carefully. Uh, you know, when you look back at the theological discussions um, throughout church history, singleness itself, I mean, you're not going to find the word single in the pages of scripture, but you are going to find virginity and widowhood and betrothal and eunuchs. You're going to find um, purity and, um, you know, moving down through church history, abstinence, chastity, continence, all of these things. And so a theology of singleness takes into account all of these things and tries to make sense of them theologically and pastorally, I think. Yeah, when you when you read the early church fathers, actually even beyond that, even to the, far into multiple periods beyond that, um, you do find this elevation of singleness, which again, it would be so foreign to us. It's mm -hmm. often accompanied by a misogyny, but but not not always. Um, so so how then do we look back historically at the idea of the elevation of singleness? I mean, we see we see hints of that in scripture, um, mm. but still, still simultaneously, we see this, you know, great value of marriage. We see both present in the scripture. So looking, just go for history for just a moment. And then I want to press mm. in on the biblical teaching. Uh, how, if we got here now, how did they get mm. there then? Mm. 
Yeah, I, I tend to think of it as a bit of a pendulum, this topic. we we Throughout church history, we've kind of swung wildly from one end of the spectrum to the other and on sort of marriage and singleness and which one we think more highly of. And it's there hasn't been a particular time where I've certainly been able to look back and go, oh, right there. That's where we had this really well settled in the middle where we were able to actually hold both of these things up as good and right and proper in and of themselves. Um so it has been a bit of a wild ride and I I started my PhD research on this with an instinct that there was more to say about a theology of singleness that we were saying currently and that I thought eschatology was the way into this. But I was a bit nervous about that because I hadn't, this felt quite novel. It felt quite new. I thought, am I just making something up here? I was shocked when I went back and spent a lot of time in the early church to realise that as sometimes weird and wacky as some of their thinking on both marriage and not being married was for all sorts of reasons, it was deeply, deeply eschatologically informed. Uh, so much of it was not about sex being dirty or impure or anything like that so much as it was a, a recognition that this world is not our home that we're already citizens of a new creation, that we live now in light of the world to come. Uh, and really their thinking about singleness and marriage was deeply informed by that to the point where at various times marriage got a really bad rap, um, I think, you know, unhelpfully so. Uh, yeah. I mean, stunningly so at times. I mean, it, it was yes. it was just, uh, yeah. And, and But again, often tied with misogyny as well. Yes, that's right. And there was there was some interesting things going on there, such as, you know, it wasn't really until Augustine that um, the early church fathers, most of the early church fathers before Augustine actually thought that marriage and sex were um, realities that came in after the fall, that they were God's concession to fallen humanity rather than created goods. And so that also comes into play there too. So as I said, some weird and wacky things. Yeah, but that's the why, main that's, lesson, actually, that's how I start conversations with my wife that, you know, I'm here because of the result of the fall. And it really, it really goes well. <laughs> right. uh, okay, so so I yeah. want you to unpack a little bit more though, because again, uh, this is this IVP ac ac academic. We we I'm, I, I owe a book that hopefully will be done in the next couple of days to IVP, turning into manuscript, but not IVP academic. Obviously, this is a dissertation topic. Hmm. Um, you know, for most of our uh, audience, they've been at a seminary for a while. It's pastors and church leaders. Uh, you got to unpack a little more of how it's an eschatological vision. You started to do that mm. there, but I want you to go a little deeper because that's the key part of your argument. Well, I think in terms of, you know, going to scripture, um, uh, there's a number of places where we see some sort of link between not being married and, well, marriage and not being married and eschatology. So 1 Corinthians 7 is obviously a key a key chapter. I actually don't spend a huge amount of time in 1 Corinthians 7 in the book. I do I do a bit of a reception history on some of the verses there, but the book is not fully based in 1 Corinthians 7. It's actually more, if there's kind of a theme verse for the book, it's actually from Matthew 22, and it's where Jesus is interacting with the Sadducees and he talks about there being no marriage in heaven where he, you know, they're trying to disprove the resurrection and he says, uh, well, you don't know scripture or the power of God in the resurrection age that will neither be married nor given in marriage, but they'll be like the angels. And so I was really fascinated to see how Christians have understood that throughout history. And really across the board, the exegesis has been pretty standard. That is, 
Uh, marriage, human marriage between men and women is for this world only. Um, it, it will not continue into the next life. They, you know, those who are husbands and wives now will not be husbands and wives in the resurrection. The ultimate marriage will have come. Um, and so that has actually been a very orthodox exegesis throughout most of church history. But what has happened at various points in church history is different, I guess, pastoral or ethical emphases that come from that. Um, so the early church was very keen to kind of focus on this and, okay, what does that mean for life here and now? Um, the Reformation was orthodox in their exegesis but quick to kind of downplay the significance of it. Um, and so really my my research is looking at, well, hang on, how do we actually, what threads of retrieval are there throughout church history as we look at scripture um, and the eschatological significance of singleness, not so that we can pull out from church history and automatically just transplant into today and say, there you go, but actually how do we pull those threads and think about what does it look like to think faithfully, theologically, biblically, pastorally about those things in our day and age now? Yeah, I think I think so much about uh, eschatology uh, leads us to like the wedding supper of the Lamb, right? I mean, that, that mm. huge theme. And so we kind of read that back into our contemporary marriages and we we make it maybe much bigger than singleness. Can can you help us trace out some of the other biblical themes around singleness that you think can really number one uh help us to better understand the the big theme and why it's important, but then also how do we then now emphasize the importance of singleness and celebrating that uh right now? Yeah, and this is something I'm always very keen to say is that in I think a lot of people expect my book on singleness to be an anti-marriage book. <laughs> and those who've read it will know that's not the case at all. I actually spent a lot more time talking about marriage really positively than I had ever expected to be talking about marriage in a book on singleness. Um, because I actually, and this is a spoiler alert, at the end of the book, I actually say marriage and singleness need each other to make sense of each other. And I think we see that eschatologically, that uh, marriage is, we see in Ephesians chapter 5, marriage is this, this signpost that points us towards the incredible relationship that we as the collective church will have with Christ for eternity, that, that wedding supper of the Lamb that we will participate in. And human marriage is so important and so significant and so beautiful for a bunch of reasons, but primarily because of that eschatological purpose it has. But one of the incredible joys of eternity that I suspect we don't think about quite as much is that we as the church will actually have interpersonal relationships with each other for eternity. We'll be embodied people who have personal continuity into the resurrection age where we will be relating to each other um, as brother and sister in Christ, but not as husbands and wives. And so singleness now from Matthew chapter 22, I think, there, there is depth to pl to plumb there on the dignity and significance of singleness here and now in the way that it also foreshadows or points towards or gives us some glimpse of actually another aspect of the world to come, which is how we will be relating to each other as members of the body of Christ, as the bride, um, who are not husbands and wives to each other, but brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of God. Uh, and so reflecting on that, I think, actually allows us to see there can be a significance to singleness here and now that goes beyond the personal experience of it, goes beyond just what I do with it, how many rosters I'm serving on, how much money I'm giving, how much time I'm spending, but actually my singleness itself inherently intrinsically has theological dignity and significance 
for the sake of the church here and now. Well, I do want to encourage people to to get a copy of the book. It's theologically robust. It's well thought out as well. The title is The Meaning of Singleness, Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. And you can actually see some of the eschatological, eschatological vision that's there. I, I do want to, um, and I would say too, I, love, I one of the themes I kind of picked up that I want to say is to couples, uh, when it comes to the eschatological, eschatological vision, nobody can, how do you say that five times? <laughs> the eschatological vision um, is that, I want to say couples, we are not Mormons. I mean, we have to acknowledge there's a different understanding of eternity. Okay. So, mm. um, so, but one of the things that is also a challenge is the, uh, is the misplacement of expertise. I think people come to me all the time and they ask me advice about things that I don't know anything about. They think, cause I know mm. the Bible really well, that I can advise them on how best to invest their 401k. Um, and so, um, so, but you have, uh, you've stepped out of being the scholar who's written on this eschatological vision to be an advocate for, uh, and you have have a ministry, single-minded ministry as well. So what then would you say to the pastors and church leaders who want to, this eschatological vision, they want to see this kingdom come now. They want to live in that kind of relationship where uh, married people and single people together function for the glory of God and in a wonderful, beautiful community. Uh, What are some things that you would give advice to us as pastors and church leaders? I I think the best form of advice I can give you is please do that. Please actually recognize the significance and the seriousness and the importance of that for the single people in your church, but also for your church community as a whole. Um, So jump on board with the conversation and and engage in it. And that's really what my book is designed to do is just to provoke a conversation. It's not the answer to the conversation. It's just designed to kind of help facilitate a conversation in that sense. Um, I think there is there can be great wisdom in recognizing that uh, our own personal experiences and histories mean that we are particularly oriented towards uh, having insights into certain aspects of life more than others. And there's a wisdom to recognize there. But at the same time, I want to encourage marriage pastors not to be reticent about actually feeling like they are going to be able to equip themselves and therefore equip the people that they're discipling with a theology and a pastoral practice of singleness. Don't just sort of delegate that to the people who are single, because actually if you have scripture, you've got the word of God, we have all that we need for faith and godliness, um, and we've got the spirit dwelling within us. And so I want to encourage married pastors to actually see this as a ministry that they're called to exercise, which also means I want to encourage single Christians to not be resentful when they hear married pastors teaching about singleness as if, well, what could they know? I think there's there's a challenge for both the married and the single in that sense. But I do think in terms of practical things, um, I suspect that a lot of married pastors are just unaware of perhaps how many people in their church communities aren't married Um what the variety of situations and contexts and circumstances for those people are, how many people in their communities that they're seeking to evangelize with the gospel are not married. I think we just need to actually broaden our horizons and to come to grips with the fact that our church communities, our broader communities are much less monochrome than we perhaps expect Mm. them to be, which is going to then challenge the way we engage in ministry and evangelism in those contexts as well. You know, Danny, as as a pastor, and I, I I've pastored congregations that were largely composed of single people, and 
And I, as, as somebody who was married, I always struggled with um, trying to talk about singleness in a way that wasn't um, condescending or patronizing. Let's say, for instance, oh, you know, Jesus was, uh, wasn't married or uh, and, and mm-hmm. at times people would feel a bit offended. Or, Probably don't want that yeah. to be the totality of your teaching, but yeah, but yeah, yeah you're exactly But I mean, things that. like that yeah. Um, yeah. and where you're trying to be helpful. And part of it is that um, uh, my experience was uh, among uh, young urban professionals and they had the desire to get married, right. um, but they just hadn't found the person. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I want to, I want to ask you, how, how can we, and this is a pastoral question as pastors who want to teach a robust theology around singleness and celebrate it at the same time, how do we not sound condescending, like that. patronizing? And then, mm-hmm. um, cause I think there are some other themes that we're not yet well equipped to address like themes of loneliness. Um, how do we deal with that? Uh, Wesley Hill wrote on spiritual friendship where I thought gave a little bit of vocabulary for some of the things that um, single, single people tend to struggle with that. I think married people, we we've, in a sense, have forgotten. So help us to kind of deal with the hard issues there. Um, yeah, that's a challenging question. And again, it goes to, I think, both both married pastors, yourself in this situation, but also your single uh, church members being willing to be generous to each other in the way that you're actually engaging with each other, the assumptions that you're making. Um, and I think that is a challenge for single people because they are used to being well, they're used to feeling condescended and patronized and kind of marginalized. And so it can be quite a vulnerable thing to open yourself up to kind of allowing yourself to not think that that is what's happening. So that's a challenge for us who are single. Um, I think a way for pastors to really move past that perception is by being real um, with themselves and their own um being willing to recognize perhaps where their own thinking has been flawed and being willing to admit that, um, not necessarily from the pulpit every Sunday, but certainly in relationship with single people, bringing single people on board with the journey. You know, if you're a pastor who's actually thinking, I really want to think hard about this, bring some single people in to think hard with you, do it together. You know, Mm -hmm. if you're going to read my book, read my book together, but my book is just one thing. There's lots of things that you could be doing so that actually it doesn't feel like you're the one getting this sorted and then you can just equip all the singles, but you're actually doing this with one another. Um, I do think that we as a church, well, we as the church, the contemporary church do need to have a bit of a reckoning um, with the way that we have idolized idealized and idolized marriage and family that's uncomfortable um but I, I do think that we need to be willing to really ask some hard questions of ourselves there uh not just for the sake of making single people feel better but actually for the sake of understanding God's purposes for marriage and family and singleness uh so this it really just does come back I think to having this being committed to having this conversation with each other um, and doing that vulnerably in good faith with a willingness to be challenged, to be humbled, um, uh, but a willingness to to move forward together uh, into whatever that conversation is going to look like moving forward. Yeah, this is where when you're on Twitter, you get people mad when you start calling for a reckoning around this issue. So I like to yeah. when you say that I like because people, they aren't quite sure how to respond. Are you, uh, you know, because Twitter is such a helpful uh, source of. <laughs> Right. communication and conversation yeah but but you know people see you know they they get one single tweet and they kind of take it from that context and sort of run with it but um but can we have 
a robust theology and appreciation of singleness. And by robust, I mean, I mean, Daniel was sort of hinting at it, you know, not just, well, Jesus was single, Paul was single, and you can volunteer more because you're single. Yeah. Um, you know, is so that's sort of the you know the 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 holy the unholy trinity of engaging singles. Can we have a robust way of engaging, perceiving, relating with single people, and simultaneously with marriage? I, I, I guess. I mean, I guess. I think the answer is yes. We can walk and chew gum, but mm. I don't see a lot of that. And right now, what it feels like to people just watching you on, on Twitter sometimes, when people respond to you, what it feels like is you're devaluing marriage when you mm -hmm. value uh, singleness. And yeah. so how are you, because obviously, I mean, for those of you who don't know, the Sydney Anglicans are wonderful. I work some of the Sydney Anglicans at different times when I'm there. Um, you know, they, they would hold conservative evangelical values on uh, marriage and singleness and more. Um, so mm -hmm. you're you're from the kind of the conservative evangelical side of the body of Christ. Um, yet it doesn't feel that way to people sometimes on Twitter when you say, mm -hmm. We need a reckoning. We made, uh, you know, people say we made marriage an idol, those kinds of things. So how do we yeah. have this conversation in a way that actually people can receive it? Or is it just going to be tough going for a while to walk through it? Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is I'm actually a conflict adverse person. I do not like conflict. And so it's kind of a this, bit weird that I this, found myself. <laughs> this is a surprise to me. This is a surprise I'm to not, me. <laughs> my friends will tell you I do not like conflict. But I think in, in this area, you know, I've I, I've spent so much time thinking about it, not that I am foolproof, not that I've got all the answers, but I feel um, equipped to be able to actually push some buttons and just see what comes back. Oh, and I love I, the fact that you acknowledge you are pushing some buttons. Let me, and let me just say, too, <laughs> you're going to come at Danny. You better you better be ready because she doesn't she doesn't play. You should follow her on Twitter. It's at Danny uh, with an I uh, and then her last name, Trewick. And so you but man, you you uh you 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 can uh, you're not a subtle person on Twitter. I mean, I like it. I'm oh, for it. I followed you. I followed you. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm not. I hopefully. I hope. I try very hard not to be aggressive, but I do try to be. I guess a bit provocative, but not just for the sake of being provocative, but because I think we do need to have these conversations. And I think going back to your original question there, Ed. I think the challenge for us is that we throughout again think of this pendulum throughout church history. We have so often seen singleness and marriage as this zero-sum game where if you are speaking highly of one, you are seen to automatically be diminishing the other yeah. or you go back the other way. And I'm also, not only am I conflict-averse, I'm a bit of a pessimist by nature too. And so I kind of sometimes think, well, what's the hope? 2,000 years of church history, we haven't been able to find that happy medium yet. Should we just give up? Um, but then I go to a passage like 1 Corinthians 7 and I see the Apostle Paul say, marriage is great, singleness is great, get on and be faithful in either of those situations, guys. And I think, well, there's our model, there's our answer. The difficulty for us is we need to be willing to let go of this zero-sum game. We need to be able to hold those two things to be true at the same time, uh, that marriage is good, singleness is good, and to say that does not diminish or negate the significance of the other. And, in fact, as I said earlier and as I, you know, I'm at pains to say in my book, they need each other. Uh, I have this illustration of marriage and singleness as these kind of two portraits that God has designed or these two paintings God has designed to be a complementary pair. They're meant to hang next to each other so that when you look at them together, you can see the beauty and the detail of one in contrast to the other. If you turn the light off on one, if you shroud one of them over, 
then actually the other one gets diminished. You don't see the fine detail. You don't notice the texture. You don't see the difference in the way that actually God has designed them to do. So we have to, there has to be a way for us to be able to say we can honour marriage by honouring singleness and we can honour singleness by honouring marriage. And that, again, I think comes back to us being willing to think the best of each other in these conversations for so long as that's actually proven to be true, give each other the benefit of the doubt that we're coming from the same perspective of wanting to see God's people um, loved well and God glorified in this conversation. But because the conversation has been so weighted in one direction for so so long, There needs to be a bit of an edge to get the conversation actually going, um, which is probably, yeah, where I'm fitting in a little bit. Yeah, I, I really love this conversation because we're recapturing, regaining like a high view of singleness. And as a pastor, I've, I learned so much from those who became single again, mm. um, either those who uh, their marriage ended or uh, because of widowhood, there is a rediscovery of relationship with Jesus that kind of just was reframed because uh, it was so framed around marriage uh, and becoming single again, it gave them another experience to re-understand Jesus. And I, I wonder, um, Danny, um, is there, going back to the diversity of singleness in the church, mm. wh- what do you think can we can learn from those who are never married and then those who have become single again? Because I think there there are those who have become single again that uh, pastors, we tend to just kind of, we don't think as much about, or we, we think about them when they get remarried. Mm. It, for a lot of them, remarriage is not the goal um, after mm. they become single again. Mm. Yeah. Well, let me let me talk about the single again first, because as you were talking, I was thinking about um, a, a church that I work, I served at um, bef- just before I started my PhD. There was um, a woman there whose name was Frances, and she had been a widow for many, many, many years. She died maybe about two years ago, and I think she was about 96, 97 when she died. But when I was at church with Frances, I just looked at her every week and thought, I want to be like you when I grow up. I just, she loved Jesus so much. She was so immersed in a relationship with him. And I'm not saying that's because she was a widow, um, but in her widowhood, in her single againness, she modelled this complete delight in relationship with Christ that I just thought was so aspirational and such a challenge and a rebuke to me. Um, And so I think that can often be the case when we look at widows and widowers who are particularly vulnerable, divorcees as well in different ways, are particularly vulnerable um, in our church community, vulnerable emotionally, financially, all sorts of ways. So many of them exhibit such a trust and confidence in God's goodness to them, even in the midst of their grief and their pain. Uh, And it's a I think it's it's devastating that we don't recognize that more in the church that we should. In terms of those who are never married, um, again, I think there's a variety of experiences there. So there are some for whom they expect never to be married. Um, some have committed to never being married. Some expect that it will never happen. And so they have lessons to teach us about what it means to trust God knowing that that door is shut. Uh, And so, right, I'm now making decisions about what it means for me to live as a disciple of Christ, knowing that that is not an option for me. And there's certain things that I've said, counting that as loss um, for the sake of knowing Christ. 
Then there's people like myself for whom the door is still theoretically open. I don't know if it's wide open. I don't know if it's open a little crack. But even for me, that's a different experience in some ways to those who have decided they will never marry because what does it look like to trust Jesus with uncertainty, with the possibility that change may happen but it may not, with holding out an open hand to God saying, I would really love you to give me this thing whilst not holding on to that and saying my whole life is contentment and happiness is dependent on whether you do give it to me or not. And so I think there is, you know, within the single uh, lives of so many Christians in our churches, there is such a witness to what it means to live as a faithful disciple of Christ in so many different ways um, that can be an enormous blessing and privilege to married people as well, just as I would want to say the same thing is true of married people and all their different contexts and circumstances, um, discipling and teaching and training those of us who are not married. Uh, last question, maybe framed with a little bit of personal journey. So um, when uh, probably our closest family friend has been uh, a single woman for for uh, probably as long as the kids, I mean, the kids grew up with her and you know, see the value of of, uh, of the beauty she's brought to our family and the friendship and all, um, you know, washes the dishes and with us and comes over and has eats with us or 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 cooks as well. So we all have this sort of uh, those relational connections. And it sort of just normalized that. And I think our kids see that as a normal part that that, that a grown adult can be uh, single and happy. And mm. so, um, so now as my daughters are getting older, they, uh, they have that part of that, but part of it is, is, I mean, we didn't, we, there were certain times when we didn't do just a couple things. I mean, so that's, you know, let's the four of us go out is just excludes, um, you know, uh, single people, unless you have two single people go, uh, to make the math work. But, um, but, but so how then, you know, use that as one example, but how then do you encourage pastors and church leaders to, um, and I'm making it's a long question because I'm I'm thinking in terms of you know we have singles ministries but singles ministries are 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 good I'm for singles ministries right uh, but often they're sometimes places to meet people and to get into relationships so what are some practical things to close our conversation here uh, and again just to remind people the the book is super helpful I want you to get it the meaning of singleness retrieving an eschatological vision for the contemporary church uh, but you're also you're doing single minded things and more. So how would you encourage pastors and church leaders, the vast majority of whom in American and Western culture are married, to find ways to make their church that kind of thriving place for singles and for married people? I think, you know, what you just described with your your single female fr- family friend has been true of me as well. There are a number of families in my life um, who consider me to be family, who invite me into their home. I just tonight messaged one of them. They've just moved into a new house. And I said, when can I come down and see it? Here are my dates. You know, when to, And they've said, yep, come this week. And it's just expected. I'm going to come. I'm going to stay the night. I'm going to hang out with them because this is what we do um, as people who consider each other to truly be family. Um, so I think pastors can be really good at encouraging families to open their lives to single people. Where I think the challenge can be is we don't want single people to feel like they belong to the church because they get to be adopted into some sort of nuclear family. Actually, the church is a family together. Singles belong in the church 
just as much as married people do. So when I come to church, church isn't an association of nuclear families with a few random singles thrown in. Instead, it's a one new family where we're all brothers and sisters together. So there's a fine line that I think we need to walk there. Um, But that can also be translated into things such as where do the people in your congregation sit every Sunday? Do families always sit together in their own little groups? Are the singles sitting by themselves? Um, do people mix and match? Do, you know, are married couples willing to kind of go and, and sit with different people rather than themselves every week? Um, that's something I find very challenging, I must admit, as a single person. I love my church, but I walk into that church every week by myself. I have to work out where am I going to sit? Who's going to sit with me? Should I go up and ask if I can sit with them? Like, it's actually exhausting. And so that's a really practical way, I think, that pastors can be thinking about um, creating a church family that actually does demonstrate that we're all family together rather than sort of individual groupings of households. Um, But yes, as much as single ministries are really important and helpful, we actually don't have a lot of single ministries in churches here in Sydney, so it's not something I'm overly familiar with. Um, I think, you know, the beauty of the church is that we are this ragtag bunch of different people um, that's the beauty of it. We don't want to sort of just categorize people into different demographics and silo them off that way. Actually, we should be looking at opportunities to bring um, older and younger men and women married and single together uh, so that we can actually disciple each other in the fullness of the body of Christ. And, and that's going to look different in all sorts of different churches, I think. You've been listening to Danielle Trewick. Be sure to check out our new book, The Meaning of Singleness, Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. You can learn more about her at daniellatreweek.com. Thanks again for listening to the Sessor Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review that help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.